All right. Let's gather. This morning, I want to welcome my mother, Theora, back. Thank you for prayer. They told her she was going to die. They said, she said, fine, send me to comfort care. So it said she ended up here in church. Is that about right? <laughs> so everybody's going to want all you folks to pray for them now when they see what happens. So um, welcome in the name of the Lord and what a blessed and beautiful day we have here. We're going to take just a little bit of a excursus is what they call it in a theological book on what it, what it really means to do God's will. What do we know about God's will? Because really, Acts is about people knowing what Christ called them to do, setting out to do it in certain ways, getting distracted in a lot of ways, but ending up at the right place at the right time in a way that you wouldn't have thought of. In fact, uh, let's begin with prayer and then we'll go start in the PowerPoint. Thank you, dear Lord, that you do get us to the right place at the right time, despite our confusion and many sidetracks and many difficulties. You're still in charge of your own universe, and we thank you for that. And we thank you that your care for us is a kind and good one, a beneficent one, and we give you praise and glory. We ask you for wisdom in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so on this topic of God's will, Christian liberty, Deuteronomy 29:29, the revealed things are for us, secret things belong to God. And the reason I wrote about this years ago was that the Apostles and Prophets movement thought that if you got the right revelator who had dreams and visions and was pious enough, the things that are secret don't have to be secret anymore. Some guy will reveal them. And then they would get personal guidance and so forth. So I have CIC readers that ask about this, and I interact with some of them via email and occasionally on the phone, but not usually, to find out what are people hearing now, 20 years after I wrote some of these articles, and a lot of the same issues are just as pertinent. The false prophets are more popular than they ever were. False teaching is more popular than it ever was. And people think that there's some Midas touch out there to be found if you just get the right secret information. And that you're going to be healthy, wealthy, and everything's going to work the way you want it to. And why be like these sorry saps like Job in the book of Job when you could get a revelation about what demon was causing the problem and have some uh, special person cast it out and so on or somebody break the curse or whatever. So I'm disputing that that is a biblical worldview and claiming that what we do know is God's revealed will and sometimes we use the term moral will. I think revealed is probably 
the best term to use. Let's see what I said here. I don't use the term. Um, it's, it's a decent term because God's reveal will doesn't cover what we maybe would think is moral or immoral. But if you know what God's will is and refuse to do it, that's sin, right? And if you refuse to believe what God said and you refuse to do what God said, it's certainly not moral. But revealed is a good term because it's more of the antithesis to secret. Go ahead. You know, Bob, I was thinking about that as well. I w- it's, you're going to be amazed at how Bob and I don't plan these things. The sermon covers much of what Bob is going to be covering today again. And uh, was, I, was, I was thinking about either using the term moral will or revealed will. I like what Bob is saying, revealed, because re- the revealed will of God includes moral categories, but it also um, includes things like prophecy. For, so, in other words, we know some things that are going to take place. Right, that's a good because point. Because God has revealed them. So that's I like a better revealed. term, then. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so what we do know about the future is what's prophesied in the Bible by God's ordained, inerrant, infallible messengers, Moses and the prophets, uh, the apostles, and the New Testament's associates of the apostles. What got us into this topic was Agabus, who was associated with the apostles, prophesying that there would be a famine in Jerusalem, and the church had enough confidence in what he said that they took action. And what happened really did, I mean, what he prophesied really did happen. And therefore, there was a way in God's providence to unify the church between the Gentiles and the Jews by Asia Minor sending relief to Jewish Christians in Jerusalem. So God's prov- providence covers things that are his purpose that. He helps us bring forth. And so we pray, we trust, and we take action. But what we cannot tolerate is people speaking bindingly in the name of God things that are not revealed and that they cannot know. There's a word for them, and they're called false prophets. And when I call them that, I get all of this really nasty pushback saying there's something wrong with me for calling a false prophet a false prophet. Like, how do you dare say that? Say something nice. Well, he prophesied and it was wrong and he was rebelling against God and harming the flock. How nice is, can you say that? Now, let's look at some passages here. Now, well, let's open this up. Let's learn. Colossians 1, 16 and 17. I'm pulling out passages that would tell us that when we say that all things work together for the good of those who were called according to his purpose, I'm shortening John 8, 28, or excuse me, Romans 8, 28, that all things in these verses, as in Colossians 1, Ephesians 1, in that context are meant to be taken literally. That's my claim. So let's read it. Colossians 1, 16, 17, ESV. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth. Let's stop there. Is all things literal or not? It's literal. Okay. Nothing springs into being out of nothing. Out of nothing, nothing comes. So God is eternal. Everything else is contingent 
and had a beginning. All right, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. Why is Paul telling that to the people in Asia Minor? Because they feared these beings and powers, as I've been telling you out of Ephesians. All things were created, literally, all things, through him and for him. God created the entire universe according to his eudokia, is the Greek word, kind intention, good pleasure. How many of you are willing to accept the truth that God can rule his own universe as he sees fit? That offends a lot of people. A lot of Christians say, if God doesn't do things my way, I won't serve him. Because they are on their high horse. They think they know better than God and his prophets. How about we humble ourselves and just accept what God said about his own self? If God hadn't spoken about his own self, we'd be like the pagans being blind. Or how about the, the, the people uh, in Sodom that were struck blind, groping around trying to find a door? We'd be groping around the universe. Is there a God? What's going on out here? Eric Dalma's theology teacher, who was my logic teacher, is now an atheist. He decided philosophy was more important than theology, and then philosophy led him ultimately to atheism. I cite him a lot in the first chapter of my second book. For through him and for him, he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. So here we see that not only did God create all things, He sustains all things. All things are holding together by God, holding them together. It says in Hebrews 1, 3, he is the radiance, talking about Christ, of his glory and the exact representation of his nature and upholds all things by the word of his power. The same attributes of the triune God of the Bible are certainly attributes of Christ who is eternal. Anybody who teaches a God or Christ that is a finite created being is a false teacher and a heretic because it says here, Christ holds, upholds all things by the word of his power. Ephesians 1.11, and we have obtained an inheritance having been predestined according to his purpose, who works all things after the counsel of his will. This is simply what God tells us about himself. So I need to adjust whatever needs to be adjusted in my worldview to account for what God has said about himself. I don't need to adjust God to me. I need to adjust me to God. Somebody said a long time ago, If you go to a church where they ask you to check your mind at the door with your coat, you're going to the wrong church. We want you to think, yes. Yeah, I just, to kind of emphasize what you're saying, you know, we we are created with rational minds. You know, God created us. We, we, We think. But that doesn't mean, in other words, we're answerable to God, not the other way around. So... There's a balance that it, I come again and again to this idea of balance that we're supposed to use our minds and we're supposed to read carefully God's word. And 
and it makes sense. We have rational minds. But there are things that we don't understand. There are things that God, the secret things belong to God. <laughs> I think we're going to get to that. And that's where we have to be humble. What's not revealed, we have to right. wait until eternity. I was thinking more about last week. I was mentioning, you know how many millions, maybe even a billion people prayed up Mary? And Mary is a finite being, a created being. She's not God. She's not the Father. She's not Christ. She's not the Holy Spirit. So how many people can she listen to at the same time? Well, she can't even hear us, much less listen to a billion people. But think about the blasphemy of claiming that a created being not only can hear billions of people, but answer them. So the pagan Roman Catholic Church, and I say that to be accurate in my description, because that's exactly what Rome is, pagan, not Christian, pagan, is claiming not a trinity, but a quatrinity. Because not only to be able to hear a billion people talking at the same time, or 100 million or 500 million, I don't know, all around the world, Mary, Mary, Mary. So she's got to hear them all. And these people think she does. Well, how can she hear them without omniscience? And how can she be everywhere without omnipresence? And how can she answer without omnipotence? So those are three incommunicable attributes of God that are only true of God. They're only true of the God of the Bible. They're not true of any created being. So if Mary has those attributes of omniscience and omnipotence and omnipresence, then according to the pagan Roman Catholic Church, she is a deity, non-created, eternal with the Father. If she's not, then they are irrational and just blabbering into the wind. Now, I'm willing to let somebody correct me on that. Nobody's going to correct me. People say, well, why can't you be nice? There's nice people going to the Roman church. That's why I'm so fervent. They should not be taught lies year after year after year after year. They're born into lies. They're trained in lies. They believe lies. They hear lies. They support lies. They give money to lies. And they die in lies. And I'm supposed to be nice and just let it go on? Do you have any compassion for anybody? Get out. You don't have to sit and listen to lies. Or stand up to the plate and you tell me how Mary has omniscience, omnipotence, and omnipresence, but it's not a deity. I'm not hearing anything. I'm not saying you believe that. Go ahead, Brother I just, want, I just want to emphasize again what you're saying. I was up in St. Cloud, uh, oh, it was about a year ago, with a, another friend of mine who was a former Muslim who became a Christian. And up in St. Cloud, there's a lot of people that are very concerned about the Islamization of St. Cloud. I was sitting in a room full of people with my former Muslim friend who's a Christian, a biblical Christian. And, you know, a guy stood up and said that 
apparently there has been a vision of Mary in the clouds that people have seen, Catholics have seen, where she's assured the Catholics that she's going to take care of everything, that they, don't, they can sit back and do nothing to defend their country. And I just, I was flabbergasted. I just couldn't believe it. So there's attributes of deity yeah. being yeah. attributed to yeah. a created being. Exactly. And the thing is, this illustrates why we have to stand up for the truth, whether, whether it comes across that we're you know, being, being nasty or mean-spirited. Uh, I, no. I did say some things to I think the it's compassionate for anybody to get yeah. out. Yeah, amen. Uh, let's go all turn together to this, and I'll show you that the Apostle Paul wasn't politically correct. He went right to the Athenians and made them feel really bad about their deities. All right, let's read it together. Acts seventeen twenty four. if you want to turn to that. Let's just read it together. How do you deal with paganism when you see it and confront it in the world that we live in and when we evangelize. Here's what, here's what happened. Paul told them the truth about the nature of God. Uh, by the way, cataract surgery is fantastic. Not only can I see the clock, not that I pay any attention to it, but uh, I got a tiny little print here and I can read it. Acts 17, 24. Paul said this, the God who made the world and all things in it. What did he say to them? God is the creator. If you're not the creator of all things, you're not God. Okay, let's go on. Since he is Lord of heaven and earth. If you're not in charge of the creation that you created, you're not God. Does not dwell in temples made with hands. God is omnipresent. He's not confined to some edifice created by humans. You can't call the contractor, and when the contractor's done, you have a temple for God. It won't work. You can be out in the middle of any wilderness in the world and cry out to God, and he hears you. He doesn't need a temple. Verse 25 nor is he served by human hands. Now remember, Paul's in Athens where they're doing all of these things. They even had a statue for an unknown God as though he needed anything. So God is totally self-sufficient. He doesn't need the creation to supply some lack in God. Since he himself gives to all people life, breath, and all things. Okay, that's Acts 17, 25. Let's learn theology. This in theology is, I think, rightly called common grace. And I believe that that God has a special love for his sons and daughters, but that God's universal love is also true in a sense, that God is a loving God. God is love. What does that mean? You can be an atheist or you can be pagan or Islamic, or any religion you can think of, or no religion, or whatever, and enjoy God's goodness in the creation during the years of your life. You can raise your family. You can work a job. You can enjoy wilderness travel through the woods, or you can paddle your boat, or 
raise your family, build your house, do, do decor, use whatever talents God gave you, and enjoy the breath. If somebody tells me how wicked I am, I don't try to disagree with them. If it wasn't for God's blood, I don't, I'm not claiming the right to just breathe God's air. It's a miracle I'm here breathing it. So we should give thanks to God, even for the most basic thing that everybody has. Give us this day our daily bread. The Lord's prayer is thanking God for what he gives and not taking anything for granted. So Paul said he gives to all people life and breath and all things. Acts 17.25. So we are in Acts, by the way. I was talking to Christy earlier. Is this Acts or not? Well, I guarantee you we'll get there someplace. Acts 17.26 is a preview of future. And he made from one man, who's that one man? Adam. Every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth. Okay, read the table of nations in Deuteronomy. You get a good idea. All right, after the flood. Also, in Genesis, excuse me, in Genesis, after the flood. And this is also mentioned in Deuteronomy. Having determined their appointed times and boundaries of their habitation. So on the scene of history, now this introduces something that we're going to discuss. On the scene of history, boundaries happen through a lot of intrigue. Wars, skirmishes, revolutions, purchases. There's all kinds of ways that boundaries happen. But do we know that in this present era of history, that boundaries are something that God determines? God in his providence allows things and uses things that are against his revealed will. It's not God's revealed will that we murder, steal, cheat, do all the things people do. But even through all of that, God still draws out the boundaries of the nations. Now, under whom will it eventually get where there are no boundaries? I see that uh, nod. Uh, Eric, could you say it in the mic? Yeah, under Antichrist. It's under Antichrist. We have politicians in America right now longing for Antichrist. They say no borders. They're saying send Antichrist right now. But you know what? They're going to think it's Christ. That's how deceived they are. God draws out the boundaries of the nations, determines their habitation. Now, we're still responsible to do God's moral law. This doesn't mean I can propose that Minnesota get a huge militia and invade Canada so we can have a better boundary because that's what God wants. I can't say that, nor can anybody else, because it's not revealed. We don't know these providential things until after they happen. So we're trying to build biblical categories. Let's go to the next slide. There's our passage, Deuteronomy 29, 29. The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things revealed belong to us and to our sons forever that we may observe all the words of this law. Now, here's something that we have to know and understand. 
that God allows and uses evil never vindicates or justifies the doers of it. Let that sink in. I'll say it again. That God allows and uses evil does not vindicate the doers of it. God used the facts, fact that Joseph's brothers abused him, threw him in a pit. They wanted to kill him, but they just threw him in a pit. And what all happened, they said, well, a beast got him. And he ended up being pulled out of there and ended up in Egypt, right? Did I get that right? And uh, we'll read a verse about that, hopefully today. Uh, what Joseph said later, after God used all that to keep his promise to Abraham, was that you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. Now, does that mean their evil deed was vindicated? No. It's something they needed to repent of. It's not right. Don't treat people like that. Don't lie to your father about your brother. Don't sell out your brother. Don't do these sort of things. Every one of us, if we think back, can think about something that turned out to be good that at the moment wasn't good at all. A lot of people are converted to Christianity because they go through something really bad. And the Lord uses it to bring them to himself. So in this context, what is revealed is that those who rebel against God and become covenant breakers, and I'm looking at Deuteronomy 29 in its bigger context, and who reject God will be judged and cursed. Just read all of Deuteronomy 29. Okay, so if you know God's revealed will and say, I don't want to hear that, I'm going to do whatever I want to do, you will be rightly judged for doing that. But God has given revealed will for our good and for our benefit that we listen to it. We are not responsible to believe and obey ideas or speculations that are not revealed by God in the Bible. We need to know this to keep us from being abused by false teachers. They will say, you must do this, or you must do that. Or God told me this. God told me that. Your life is going really bad because you're cursed. Well, how am I cursed? Well, then they get a revelation. Let me comment on that. I'm helping somebody right now who's brand new through CIC. Here's how it goes. Something is undesirable in somebody, anybody's life, which by the way is always true because of the fall, right? But let's say that's undesirable in a way that makes you go for help. Well, the help turns out to be a Christian curse breaker. And the way they break the curse is they get, they go to prayer and get a word of knowledge about what the curse is. And then the person gets a revelation. You're cursed because you had an ancestor who did this or that, whether it's verifiable or not. So then they pray and break that particular curse. 
but I think I wrote an article about this. You have so many ancestors, most of which you don't know. If you just go back four generations, you spend the rest of your life breaking curses, never work your way through all of it. And most of the time, none of it ever happened anyhow. Well, I went back. I thought, this thing, this First Corinthians 12 gets abused and abused and abused. So it's been a while since I taught on it. So I went back and looked at it. Well, it's about the body of Christ and the fact that we need one another. There's nothing in Paul's writing to suggest that the term, which uses a genitive, which creates a certain ambiguity, and he, and he doesn't define it any more than that. The point is you need each other. Everybody has something to offer. Well, the word of knowledge can mean a word based on the knowledge of Christ and the gospel that would benefit the body at that time. So I have a word of knowledge right now from God, according to 1 Corinthians 12. The word of knowledge is this. Based on what I know God has revealed from the Bible, if you believe in Jesus Christ, you are not cursed, thus saith the Lord. That's my word of knowledge. Now the Bible says you may all speak and then the others judge. If you want to judge that, you can You can say, well, Bob, uh, Christians are cursed. But then I want to see the evidence. But I've got good evidence from Ephesians that Christians are blessed. What's the blessing of Abraham? It's the gospel of Christ. It comes to us through the gospel. So I basically went back to the lady who was afraid she was cursed and said, no, you're actually blessed. And I sent a link to the sermon that we did on that. So we need each other. We need to help each other come face to face with the promises of God in the gospel. So in this particular case, and I I love interacting with people that are newly getting out of air because it helps me know what people need and what articles to write. So, well, how do you know that? How do we, how do we understand this? How does this work? How do I know these curse breakers are wrong? Based on Ephesians one, we are blessed in Christ. And if Jesus Christ died for sins, and he died for all the just for the unjust in order to bring us to God, and that the curse ultimately is death, and then ultimately eternal death, the blessing is life in Christ. And the Bible says the way to blessing is through faith in Christ. So I said, here, well, what do I do? Believe the promises of God. Well, here's what happens. People go to churches or they have no clue what the promises of God are, or they're told promises that God never made. That's why we've got to get this right. What is revealed? Well, tell me a promise of God that will do some good. Cast your cares upon him because he cares for you. The promise is he cares for you. Do you believe that Jesus Christ cares for you? Do you believe that he bodily ascended to heaven, sits at the right hand of the majesty on high, has the attributes we read about in Hebrews 1.3. He upholds all things with the word of his power. He's omniscient and omnipotent. And that Jesus is capable of hearing a billion people at the same time. And answering each one of us according to our individual needs. So that... 
we may go to the throne of grace, Hebrews 4, 16, and find grace and mercy and timely help. There's the promise of God. Oh, doesn't that help? Which would you rather have? A prophet saying you're cursed because your great-grandfather did such and so that nobody can verify whether it happened or not. Or it doesn't matter what your great-grandfather did. Jesus died for your sins and you can go to him and you're blessed. Where's the good news? Okay. Oh, you know what I love? The older I get, the simpler it gets. It seems so complex 20 years ago. Somebody said, well, I don't want to hear these simplistic answers. You got to, this is way more complex than you say. Yeah, it's very complex, but the answer is tailored for us as finite humans that don't know everything in the universe. And we do know that he cares for us and that he hears us and that Jesus, who we claim to be, what's wrong with that simplicity? Philippians 1.12. Now, here's how it works on the scene of history. Now, I want you to know, brothers, that my circumstances have, look at that phrase there, turned out, very interesting, for the greater progress of the gospel. Eric's going to preach on this today because I saw the passage he's covered. He's talking about being hindered, trying to go to Rome. Okay. Oh, this was such a breakthrough when, I, when it finally dawned on me. I don't have to be omniscient to please God. You might say, well, well, obviously, why would you think you do? Well, I never really thought I did. But I thought, I always used to think there's a secret to success. And it came from the subjective realm of revelations. The Holy Spirit is trying to tell me what to do. And I never quite get it right. And the only way I know whether I got it right or not is how things turn out. One time I, maybe I mentioned it last week, I was rebuilding a car engine and went, one thing went to this and to that and we pulled and then we had the heads done and then we took the block out and had to, had to remachine the block and got, uh, it went on and on and on and on. I finally ended up with a, an old car with a rebuilt engine. And when I finally got done and I'm driving this old rat car with a rebuilt engine, I thought, I wasn't hearing from God. Because that's in the 80s, I was still transitioning to this worldview. We're talking about a providence. See, if I would have prayed and God would have said, thus saith the Lord, Bob, don't rebuild that engine. Get a different old rat. (laughs) It's guaranteed I'm going to get an old rat because back then that's all we could ever afford. But the point was this. I didn't understand these categories. If it's not God's revealed will... And it hasn't happened yet. We can ask God for wisdom, and that's one of the categories we've got to cover. But I'm free to decide I want to rebuild an engine or free to decide to go try to find something else. It's within my Christian liberty to make that decision. Now, we might fail the test of godly wisdom, which is peaceable, pure, gentle, easy to be entreated, and without hypocrisy and full of good fruits. By doing something like buying a brand new Maserati and I can't feed my children. Okay, probably a bad idea, right? 
because they're feeding the children is more important than me running around in a sports car being hot. Okay, so this is how we proceed. But there's no magical, quote, word from God that's going to make us into cannot fail people. And if we were, we'd get bored with it. And you say, oh, no, 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 try it on me. I don't think I'd be bored. I, I was thinking of an illustration of this. We, fr- we enjoy Christian freedom because our goal, like Paul's, is the progress of the gospel and the well-being of the body of Christ. But within that, there's lots of differences and people can dress differently and different economic situations, different genders and different ages and all the different things that make up the diversity in the body of Christ is part of our enjoyment. And if there was some secret that made everything go the way we want, we'd get bored with it. That's why any game that's popular has a built-in possibility of failing. Here's an illustration I thought of. I was sitting in my garage and I was contemplating this message. Here next to me was this big uh, trash container that we put organic material in because they pick up organics. And I thought, what if I invented a game? I'm going to invent a game right now. You get a bean bag and you stand right here and the, the thing's there and you drop it into the trash container and if it goes in, you win. <laughs> Oh, I'm good. <laughs> Give me a whole bushel. I think they'll all fall in there. Now, why is there no such game? There's no intrigue because there's no possibility of failure. There's no challenge to it. Okay? So games that are popular all have us enjoying the freedom of possibly failing. It's the way humans are in the world we live in right now. So the faith teachers who are teaching this Midas touch version of Christianity that's based on getting revelations from God and having knowledge that no other people have, including other Christians, and are going to become little gods who can't get sick and can't fail and can't be poor and can't whatever... They're wishing for something that would be a curse if everybody had it. Even in the garden before the fall, there were things to do. To till and keep, to name the animals. And we don't know everything that'll be in the future in paradise. But it'll be enjoyable. We can be sure of that. So... In Paul's sense, he he wants to preach the gospel where it hasn't been. And that's God's revealed will because you read it in Acts 24 and in Acts 2 to uh, Judea, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the uttermost parts of the world. Paul wanted to go to Rome because that would guarantee because of the nature of Rome that it would penetrate the entire empire because that was the center place. Antioch was the third biggest center after Alexandria and Rome. That's where he wanted to go. But how he got there included all kinds of things that he didn't know in advance were going to happen. So the circumstances turned out to the progress of the gospel. I'd have to say that about my life. A lot of things have happened 
some of which were bad and wrong, and I failed. If we stick with the gospel, we'll end up being of benefit to the body of Christ. And God will use us. Now, Acts 2, 23 and 24. To save time, I'm just going to be reading these. But this is again Acts, Acts 2, 23 and 24. This man, delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, stop right there. Why was it that Jesus came and was rejected and crucified? Predetermined plan, foreknowledge of God. Notice foreknowledge is not contingent. Let me give you a little something for the scholars and one, the one people want to be scholars. God knows all contingencies, but God knows nothing contingently. Okay, so that chuckle means to say that again. God knows all contingencies, but God knows nothing contingently. In other words, foreknowledge is exhaustive for God, but he's never taken by surprise. In other words, he doesn't have to have something outside of himself inform him. Like I used that, I think that came when I was debating Greg Boyd or writing an article about his open theism. Because Greg Boyd's God is contingent in many different ways. So I would say that's not the God of the Bible who doesn't know the future. Let's go on. Delivered over by the predetermined plan, foreknowledge of God, you, this is Peter saying to his Jewish brothers, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men. What was Peter saying to his Jewish friends and brothers? You're wicked people who did evil. This was God's plan. It was God's foreknowledge, but you are still morally culpable for what you did. You did evil. You rejected Messiah. You wouldn't listen to him. You wouldn't believe everything that happened. And you did it. So you're guilty. But this was God's plan. Let's go on. You nailed to the cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. But we know that he's the Lamb of God slain before the foundation of the world. So it's God's eternal plan. But God's eternal plan never gets any wicked sinner off the hook on the scene of history. Does that make sense? But, here's a great phrase, but God. I had that coming up in a sermon. I was just working on it. But God raised him up again, putting an end to the agony of death since it was impossible for him to be held in his power. Wow. There is God allowing what happened declaring the moral guilt of the ones who did it and overcoming what happened for a greater good. So I would say that's a biblical way to state it. God allows evil. God uses evil. God overcomes evil for a greater good than would have been had evil never happened. Yes, Brother Eric, or no, Lonnie. Yeah. Say, I got a question about that phrase you use but God. I've heard that by, well, like Henry Morris used to use it a lot, uh, the phrase, you know, if 
uh, somebody was depressed about something or suffering about something yeah. or something didn't go some certain way, he would say, but God. Okay. So do you, what, can, what does that All really mean? All right, let me mean? comment on that. The but God in the context here, and I'm going to be talking about it in Ephesians 2, which is very interesting literature. Let me give you a preview so you want to come to church. Paul writes in a way that none of my proofreaders would have allowed me to ever do. I'm not blaming them. It's just not how we write now. He starts out with dead. But you being dead. Dead men walking. Dead. Dead in sin. Dead, dead, dead. And how bad it was. And made alive doesn't come till verse 5 which is going to take me, that'll be my second sermon on this. And so you're dead, you're dead, you're dead. And this is how bad it is. But then, but God made us alive. So that's God's revealed will. When it comes to other things that we don't know as revealed will, that could be correct if we say, but God told us we could pray and go to the throne of grace. But God comforts us in all of our afflictions. But God cares for us. Those, because that's all drawing on revealed. But if we say, but God's going to do a mighty miracle and this and that's going to happen, that we can't know, then we're speaking out of school. We can't do that. Because we don't know God's future providential will until it unfolds on the scene of history. So that's a good question. Genesis fifty twenty. As for you, you meant it evil against me, but, but God, there it is again, meant it for good in order to bring about this present result to preserve many people alive. So Joseph knew that through what happened. We can look back and see how God used what all happened. Here's another way. Think of this. We can always look back, and we should, and learn. Not that we dwell on the past or process the past, but we learn from it. Right? I look back before I became a Christian. Do I want to live like that, cursing God and living for the devil? No. There, you learn something. Yes, uh, Luann. Well, just I wanted to go back a little bit because when you were talking um, about Paul and dead, 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 and I just couldn't help but be thinking about in Genesis, well, first of all, we know the curse, the promise that we were given in the curse is that we're going to die. And then when they go, when Genesis talks about the genealogies and it talks about all of in Seth's line, and then he died, and then he died, and then he died. And so it's just kind of, you know, again, it's just following that promise right from the beginning. We're going to die, the genealogies, and they died, and then Paul going, you are dead, you are dead, you are dead. But God, right? You know, Luann, that's also a good cross-reference. I don't remember if I have it in my sermons or not, but death reigned. Eric covered this in Romans. What is it, Eric? Death reigned from Adam? Yeah, Uh, I think I am going to cover that. Even over those who did not sin in the likeness of the sin of Adam. 
death reigned in the whole human race because of Adam's fall. Go ahead. You know, there's an important but in 320 to 21 of Romans where, for by works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. But now the righteousness of God is manifest apart from the law, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. So there's a divine but there as well, I like to call it, because man left to his own course of action is going to lead to death. We can't save ourselves. We can't justify ourselves. So God intervenes, and that's what Bob's pointing out here even in the the Acts text. God intervenes, and there's a divine intervention. Otherwise, we go to death as the only... That's the only thing we can... We are capable of bringing about, as it were, on our own. Yeah, that brings something up that I wanted to mention. Maybe some of you can start thinking about this. I, I may need to do something with this material. I showed it to Eric this morning before church started. Somebody sent me something that was claiming that salvation is actualized by the free will of man. Okay, somebody sent me that. So I thought, well, if it's that important... Then why don't I look? Because I got some tools here. So I did a search. I just did this yesterday or day before and printed out. I looked up every time in the whole New Testament the term free is used in any context. Freedom as a noun. Free as an adjective. And free as a verb. So I thought what do I learn from what the term free means here? And the answer is it never ever suggests that lost sinners have free will in regard to saving faith. The freedom I'm talking about is the freedom to make choices in the world that we live in as humans. What house to buy, what car to buy, what job to take, if we can get one at all, what to name our children. We, we have freedom. But I want to know what the Bible said in regard to salvation. Here, let me give you the bottom line. I have this material. Anybody studying Greek, email me. I'll send you this. According to the New Testament, this sort of freedom comes after you meet Christ. Let me give you some examples that I found in my research. John 8, 32, you will know the truth and the truth shall set you free. John 8, 36, therefore, if the son sets you free, you will really be free. Romans 6, 18, therefore, having been liberated or freed from sin, you became enslaved to righteousness. 6, 22, liberated or freed from sin. Romans 8, 2, the spirit of law of life in Christ sets you free from the law of sin and death. Romans 8, 11, the creation will set you free from the bondage itself will be, will be set free from the bondage of corruption to the freedom of the children of God. So I, I have every use in the entire New Testament. And they're all saying that this sort of freedom that we want comes from God. I can tell you that we do have freedom as sinners to enjoy God's common grace and his good. You can live your life 
within a lot of parameters that God allows all people to do. But to be free as the sons of God, we need a supernatural work of God to give us that. Now, if you go back and read John 8, that's what, this was so intriguing to me. I went back and read John 8 again. <laughs> you know what started the whole battle? Jesus offered them freedom and they got mad that he suggested they didn't already have it. <laughs> and they ended up wanting to kill him. Who are you to tell me I'm not free? Who do you think you are? Well, anyhow, let's get the categories right. Now, we, we wrote a couple articles on this, not about the freedom of the will. I researched that back in the 90s. It's not my favorite topic, but I'll go there if I get challenged enough. I prefer to talk about these things. If we're not Christian, and we don't know Christ, and we're not whatever religion we are or irreligion, we have some freedom to enjoy God's good earth. Do you see that? We're not here to try to take away common grace. You're free to play baseball or golf or walk through the woods, like I said, or canoe or whatever it is you like to do. But to be free in the sense that the word of God promises freedom of the glorious liberty of the sons of God We have to have Christ. Only Christ grants freedom. So I think we need to humble ourselves and say, if God didn't set me free, I wouldn't be free. I could still do what I wanted, but I wouldn't be free in that sense. Now, here's another article. I think we got some upstairs. It's called God's Will and Christian Liberty. Christians have the liberty as well to choose many different things under Christ's lordship. The perfect Christian life doesn't mean God dictates every single step that you take. Does that make sense? I used to believe that way. We used to be in a group that pray all night long trying to get revelations about what to do. And a lot of the times it just had to do with making a decision that we're free to make anyhow. Well, like our dear friend Brian here uh, loves to have gardens. He's free to have his garden, right? He was just telling me, he gave me some fruit of his garden. He has all kinds of things he grows in his garden. He's free to do that. But he was telling how the Asian, no, what kind of beetles were they? Yeah, Japanese? Yeah. No, it's the beetles. They came and ate up all his apples and beans. That's what happens after the fall, right? So you have to pull the thistles and adjust and see what happens next year. But that's part of the, that's the way life is. It wouldn't be more fun if you had that beanbag game. Yes. Yeah, I, I should be brief because I know we're trying to get through here. But what we're talking about here on this free will, you know, I remember long before I was a believer, what, what used to really there was kind of a movement or something. There's a lot of Christians now, too, that will... When I, when I rejected as a, as a young guy was this idea that I was going to be a robot, you know? And that's what you're talking about here. That's, that's, you're making it clear. In other words, we're not robots. We want a Christ-centered life. That's, that's what we... Mm-hmm. Jesus Christ will direct us in all... But we have free will. But so many people, they get it wrong, and they, and they make it really... Uh, Let's put it this yeah. way. It was, a real, it was a real barrier for me. Yeah, that's not you how know. God runs his right. universe. 
Exactly. Even if you, whatever you believe about God's sovereignty, I think it's pretty strong here. God has chosen to run his universe, including his own church, in a way that we have liberty to make decisions under his providential oversight. That doesn't go away because we become a Christian. We're not robots, and we know that. I think Edward said, what's freedom of will if it's nothing... If, it's, if it is an enjoyment of it. Maybe God knows what I'm going to do this afternoon, but I have the freedom to, maybe we're going to go eat somewhere, or maybe after that I'll edit the audios, and maybe this will happen, and maybe that will happen. Maybe I'll cover this verse and not that when I'm teaching. But we're free to make those decisions, and we enjoy it. I get excited when I find a verse that I think will help you, because it helped me. That's freedom. That's not being a robot. Yes. Oh, there. Okay. Is that better? Yeah. Oh, I just, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I just want to share what Laban and I witnessed at uh, the county fair at Lake Elmo the other day when you're approached by a real strong Catholic. This lady from New York was visiting, so she came to our booth, and Jason was also with Laban and myself, and he tried very hard to question her and to give her some verses from the Bible. And they were going round and round and round, and finally she did this. She put her hand on his and she said, Jason, don't worry about me. We Catholics take care of each other. <laughs> okay. <laughs> well, that's true. Now the question is, what do you have for forgiveness of sins? I, I, I appreciate that question. A friend of mine asked Rick Warren that question. He said, I've been at your conference for four days hearing from people, hearing you address all these world people that are going to do your peace plan. I haven't heard a word about forgiveness of sins. Why don't you tell me what you have for that? Hmm. Well, I guess we don't have anything about forgiveness of sins. All we have is human wisdom on how to be successful. What does the gospel offer that you can't get anywhere else? forgiveness of sins and the gift of eternal life. One more, and then we need to be going ahead. Go ahead. Let's see if yeah. I can word this. Um, could you tie in the, we were talking, you were talking earlier about the frightening aspects of uh, apostasy in its various forms. You know, you zeroed on, in on Catholicism, which is one of thousands. Um, just the frightening aspects of apostasy and how that ties in with okay. free will and what you're talking about. Um, the, let me use this as an exa- a chance to, again, commend the podcast on Hebrews that we're broadcasting through CICMinistry.org. We deal with that. It's so important. Study the book of Hebrews. Offering sacrifices again and again and again and again can never take away sins. In Hebrews, I think it's clear that the temple was still in operation when it was written. And they could go and they could smell the smells and hear the bells and watch the pageantry. And really that's what Rome offers is pageantry. And sacrifices. The mass is a sacrifice. So they're sacrificing Christ over and over and over and over. 
in contrast to that, the book of Hebrews says Christ's sacrifice is better. It's according to the Melchizedek priesthood, Psalm 110. And it's done once for all, and it does take away sins. And there is forgiveness. And if you go back, because the temple looks more interesting, and you're sick of Christ once for all, you'd rather have the high priest go in there on a day of atonement, you're an apostate. And if you go back to that because you reject Christ, there remains therefore no more sacrifice for sins, but a certain terrifying expectation of judgment. That's what it says. I didn't make it up. Now people want to know about potentiality and all that stuff. But I got a better answer. You just keep going to Christ and don't go back to Rome. They don't have forgiveness of sins, and neither is Rick Warren. God did it all once for all in Christ, and we can go to him freely. He loves us. He cares for us. And he took our... Here, last verse. We went along. I knew I was going to do that. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all generously and without reproach, and it will be given to him. If we don't know how to get through our sufferings and our trials and our difficulties... God cares for us. You don't lose your salvation. You don't lose the fact that your sins are forgiven. But you find hope and comfort and wisdom. And Christians who believe the truth prayerfully put things in God's hands, trust him and care for one another, and then we go out and enjoy our liberty and just make decisions. And if we make one that we regret later, because we bought a house and it turned out the board, the boards in the roof are rotten. There's no recrimination. That's what it says. Reproach. God is going to say, well, you stupid Christian, why'd you buy a house with rotten roots? You should have asked me. I would have told you the right one to buy. That's not how it works. Because he does allow us to have our freedom. But we ask for wisdom. And the overcoming, figuring out, okay, now i got to tear out the shingles and get some better boards. That's how we live life. Dear saints, God loves you, and he wants you to ask him for wisdom. And then you go about in your liberty and make your decisions, and there's no reproach. You did not fail, God, if your car breaks down. Let's pray. Thank you, dear Lord, for helping us. We do ask for wisdom. When we pray for our friends and loved ones who are caught in man-centered religions and works and have no forgiveness, may the light dawn and shine on them so that they see and they come to true freedom in Christ. We ask you to help us, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for being patient. We went a little long. God bless.